Sean McDermott likes to say that his claim to fame is that he sent the very first email at the U.S. Department of Justice. And while he enjoys being part of that footnote in IT history, Sean, who is now the founder and CEO of Windward Consulting Group, admits that the tech industry has come a long way since then, and it continues to evolve. Right now, the industry finds itself at an intersection where government and the private sector have never needed IT more than they do today. And it's a CIO's job to bring tech where it is needed most. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Sean discusses the role his company plays in assisting large organizations at scale, solving their IT issues. Plus, he explains what CIOs are looking for in today's climate and the future of technology in the workplace. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com platform. This podcast is created by the team at mission.org. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, host of IT Visionaries. And today we have special guest, Sean, what's going on? How much? How are you? I am doing well. It's a great day to be talking about IT, be some AI ops, you know, and everything in between. We're going to talk a lot of uh, tips and best practices for, for CIO and IT leaders out there. You had a long career in this, so uh, let's get into it. How'd you get started in technology? So. I graduated with a degree in engineering. There's a small story there. I went to college uh, to be an art major. And then I decided uh, somehow I I went as an art major and came out as an electrical engineer. So I'm not entirely sure how that happened. I will say that I wasn't a great engineer. (laughs) So, but uh, then I, you know, I I went into engineering. I think I eventually ended up in engineering just because I, I wanted options. And I ended up in electrical engineering because it, it seemed like the most options of engineering at the school I went to. And um, so when I graduated, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I thought I was going to go into like sales, you know, selling engineering products. But um, I got a lead on an opportunity with the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. And so I jumped on that. And I ended up in the telecommunications services group, which basically provided all telecommunications support for. The Department of Justice, you know, Bureau of Prisons, FBI, Immigration and Naturalization Service. I never really knew what telecommunications was until I got there. It was a really good opportunity because it was a, an engineering and training position. So I got a lot of training, uh, got my master's paid for, and, uh, and that pretty much started it. And really fell in love with, with IT and telecommunications and got pretty involved in the internet. And uh, my, my little claim to fame is I sent the very first email at the Department of Justice because I brought up the very first internet connection. I registered usdoj.gov. So I was pretty much on the forefront of that. And then uh, that led to... I always knew I wanted to go into consulting. And that led to a position, uh, Booz Allen, which was at the, you know, one of the premier consulting companies in the world, called me. And asked me to come and interview, and I went and interviewed, and surprisingly got the job, and rose through some ranks there for about five years, and again focused on telecommunications. And they wanted me to work on IT, so I worked on 
Uh, one of my first projects there was working on the defense messaging system, which was the next generation critical messaging system for all Department of Defense. So like when, it, when a submarine comes out of the water and puts its tower up and sends messages, they were going to go out over the, the DMS. And so I worked on a lot of the specifications on how to manage this infrastructure once it was up and running. So I, got, I started getting involved in, in enterprise management and really fell in love with that and fell in love with kind of the operations side of IT. This was in the beginning when you know, IP networks were just being built for the first. I actually was the manager of the first IP network built in the Department of Justice, and it might have been one of the first built in the civilian agencies. And we were on the forefront working with this company called Cisco that no one ever heard of. And it just kind of led to one thing to another. And I eventually fell in love with the operations side. And while a lot of people were excited about building networks and building these first generation IP networks, which eventually it became the internet, I was more fascinated with the operations side of it and how to run it once it was built. And nobody was really thinking about that at the time. And that led to about five years after being at Booz Allen, I decided that you know, I had better ideas and I started my first company. Uh, Winward Consulting Group, which is still around today, and we've been around for 23 years, and we're you know one of the global leaders on enterprise management for Fortune 500 companies, and we support a number of um, large networks for the Department of Defense. Yeah, well, and I want to get into uh, to all of that. You know, you call yourself a, a serial entrepreneur. You started a handful of businesses, and obviously have run Winwood for 20 plus years. It's a little bit of a different path to be able to juggle those things. How have you managed? Uh, I think I'm more of a parallel entrepreneur, <laughs> which is a little harder because I tend to start companies at the same time and uh, makes for long days. But you know, I, one of the things is I've hired some really good people along the way. Uh, I've got great teams. When you get really good people surrounding you and, and smarter people than I that are able to execute and it gives you more time to do some things. And I've been lucky that I've started you know, several companies along the way and um, had a lot of success at them and was able to experience a lot of things like raising money and raising venture capital and getting involved in that world, which is interesting and bootstrapping other companies by ourselves. So you know, it's a testament to the people that I work with really and the ability for for us all to be on the same page and, and be very focused on what we're doing and, and working really well together. And I, and I would say a lot of, you know, most of the people that you know, work for me uh, really are some of my, uh, my favorite people. So yeah, tell me, tell me a little bit about the types of companies that you work with at, at Winward and, and some of the things that you're helping, uh, helping those companies with. Sure. So there's really two kind of areas that we work in at Winward. We do a lot of work on the federal side, so federal government, and do a lot of work with the Department of Defense. And we also do a lot of work in the financial services, telecommunications, and insurance areas. The common theme to both of those areas, because a lot of companies look at them very differently, and I know a lot of um, software companies we work with, they, you know, they call federal public sector, and they kind of operate independently. I experienced that firsthand because one of the companies that I founded in um, 2004, I eventually sold to BMC Software and I spent a year at BMC as vice president of their service automation group, which was about $200, $250 million annual business. So I, I see it from their side. But from our perspective at Windward, 
we consider our customers the same, whether they're federal or commercial. Um, the common theme here is that they're large companies, they're large infrastructure. So we really deal in scale. So all our, our commercial customers are Fortune 500 companies running massive global infrastructures, big data centers, um, highly IT driven. You'd think that a consulting company like us would work with people who don't have a lot of IT experience. And it's actually quite the opposite. We work with very sophisticated IT organizations dealing with very sophisticated problems that scale introduces. So if you're a, a hospital system and maybe you have, say, 50 servers and, and a few applications that you're working with, we work with a bank that has 180,000 servers and massive amounts of transactions and dealing with um, business, a business that um, works on microseconds. You know? So that's really our, our forte. And when you look at the federal side, we work with the two largest networks in the world. One is, one is the largest private network in the world. And this other one is the largest civilian network in the world. And again, it, it all comes down to scale. So for us, really, our focus at Winward is to help these companies manage these large infrastructures much more efficiently. We don't actually manage them for them, right? We don't have people sitting in network operating centers and help desks, but we provide them all the tools to do it better. We, we provide data analytics tools. We provide service desk applications, provisioning applications, configuration management, uh, monitoring of infrastructure, all those tools. And we link them all together and we, we integrate them together. And now what we're doing is and we're talking about AI ops. And that's a big kind of core function for us. The core area is how to bring all this stuff together and apply machine learning around it to really elevate IT operations to another level. And what are some of the things that you hear talking to CIOs and IT leaders like, you know, obviously the IT sprawl um, or tool sprawl that you've talked about is, is a very real thing. But what are some of the things that you're hearing folks, you know, concerned about specifically with, you know, obviously everything going on with COVID, but, but even beyond that? Sure. I, I think the, the really the, there's several major areas that they're thinking about and kind of on their top of mind constantly. First one is security, right? It's always, security is always top of mind and it's pervasive in everything they do and every decision they make, right? And assessing risk management of any new initiative, assessing risk management of current initiatives. And, and COVID has been very interesting with the move to remote and how fast things have been moving that we're hearing a lot from CIOs right now trying to say, okay, now we need to go back and make sure we haven't like skipped any steps or things have fallen through the cracks that may open up risk for us. So that's one area that's on a big conversation. Another big area is around data and data analytics. And it's becoming, in, in every facet of the world, right, we're becoming a data-driven world, right? Whether it's data-driven through social media or buying metrics that you know, companies are using trying to figure out how to market products and sell. We're seeing the same thing in IT where trying to use data, trying to harness data, especially in a time where we have more data coming into IT than ever. It's moving up by multiple factors every year. More things are instrumented, more data is coming in. So a lot of conversations around how to sort through that data, how to make decisions, how to be more proactive, how to manage data, 
I think the other thing, you know, cost is always on the top of the list of things to talk about and people are worried about. And, you know, IT, IT operations is, you know, it's a cost center, right? And, you know, I think a lot of us want to include IT operations in the revenue discussion. And I think there's definitely facets to that and ensuring availability of, of services to consumers or end users is critical for revenue generation. But I think IT operations still has this perception of being a cost center. And the demands continue to go up while the budget doesn't necessarily go with the, the increase of demand. It's not linear. So you know, CIOs spend a lot of time right, trying to figure out how to manage all this and how to make good investments and how to keep the lights on while also making strategic investments to modernize and become more agile and you know like with like cloud and things like that and you know and how to how to optimize cost spend and that's where tool sprawl comes in and we I talk about a lot is there's just a tremendous amount of money being spent in the tooling of IT and it's run relatively unchecked and there is a tremendous amount of time and money going into that and that's a big area that we think that CIOs can be saving money. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about uh, Red Monocle. Sure. So Red Monocle, all my companies eventually, they, they're born out of my consulting company. You know? And for the last 20 years, we've worked with organizations that come to us and say, hey, we have too many tools. We have too many security tools. We have too many operations tools and monitoring tools. And, and I asked three very simple questions. I said, how much money do you spend on tools per year? How many tools do you have? And how are those tools working for you? And I still haven't had anyone answer the question <laughs> because it's, they can't. And that to me is a fundamental problem. When you start looking at organizations that we work with, Fortune 500 companies could be spending $25, $50 million a year on all these tools like service desk. It is not uncommon for a Fortune 500 company to buy a tool that costs them a million dollars a year. That's common. It's not rare at all. And when you started compounding the fact that a lot of these Fortune 500 companies could have anywhere from 250 to 400 different tools they use to manage the business of IT, then it becomes a very big problem. And so for the last 20 years, we've been asked to do this. And as a consultant, we'd come in and we would do you know, in assessments and engagements and interviews and collection of data and ultimately provide a report and with recommendations. And the, the customers love the data. The problem is, is that by doing it that way, it became very much a, an annual effort. And you know, customers just don't want that. They don't want to pay for an annual audit every year over and over and over again, unless they're regulatorily compliant, right? Which, you know, like an accountant, you know, they need an audit every year from an accounting firm. So we, we kind of set out to relook at the problem. And in 2008, we launched Red Monocle, which is a SaaS platform that allows us to automate most of this process. And we have connections to pull in their tools from and discover their tools and bring them into a portfolio. And we have analysts that we have this large database of tools that we've already profiled. So all they really have to do is identify that they have a tool and we match it to our database and we fill out all the information about it. The other side of the equation is they need to understand what their needs are. 
And so we've created this uh, taxonomy of capabilities that they can pick from to build their requirements. And right now we have about 5,000 normalized capabilities in that database, broken down into 40 functional areas and sub-functions. So it's the only large-scale taxonomy on the market today. And we've searched around and looked at people like Gartner and, and IDC and Forrester and analyst firms trying to find models that we could work off of and we haven't. So we essentially built our own. So those two things allow us to, in a matter of a week, essentially answer those three questions that I brought up. And the results are startling. You know, I mean, we, we're working with a large entertainment company right now that's got 250 tools. And just from the first 50, we, we used as a proof of concept, we identified $2 million in savings. So, and the savings isn't even part, of, isn't the whole answer, right? It's, it's the risk of not being able to, they don't understand the gaps that they have. So, and this is really apparent in the security world. So you spend millions of dollars a year on security tools to secure your environment, not knowing that you actually have gaps and you have these requirements that aren't being met. And every one of those requirements that isn't being met is a risk point, right? That can be taken advantage of by someone on the outside. So our tool allows us to assess those gaps and help CIOs make decisions on where to make investments and say, hey, these security gaps are really high priority. We need to fill them. And we can actually, through our, our technology, our database, tell them the exact tools that will be able to fill those gaps and they can make you know, acquisition decisions much quicker. I love the kind of before and after imagery and for you know, our listeners can check it out on redmonocle.com of you know, the before 162 tools after 140 you know, eliminated 22, you know, tools due to capability overlaps and things like that, right? I do have to ask though, of the 22 tools that got eliminated, I'm curious, or for in this example, but I'm curious like how many like business owners or folks within the organization were like still using those or clamoring for those, right? Like part of the politics of being the CIO is that you want to keep the, you know, line of business owners happy. So I'm curious, like as you identify these things and as people look at, you know, cutting these type of, you know, capabilities, like what happens when, uh, when those two things are at odds? So that's a really good question and it comes up all the time. So one of my customers actually said, for the first time, we have empirical data to back up these decisions that we're making. Because the reality is, is that the people who have to make these decisions, they really don't understand this technology, right? Because you're talking about tools across multiple domains. And, you know, a, a vice president who's trying to make financial decisions may not actually know exactly what that tool does. So he doesn't know if it's needed or not. So he relies on his people, right? And, you know, the reality is, is that you know, we don't like change. People don't like change, right? And you always have that issue of people saying, hey, let's, we can't get rid of my tool. You know, my tool is important. Is it though? Or is it really important to that person and their career and their skill sets? And it's, it's a fear that they have that they won't be able to, uh, that they'll be out of a job as the tool's not there. They tie their identity to some of these tools. And it happens pervasively across organizations we work with. So, what this allows is it allows these decision makers to make very empirical data and sit down and say, 
why is this tool any better? Because this tool over here does all the exact same things. And, you know, it creates a much more data-driven dialogue. And a lot of times the person, you know, doesn't really have much of a, <laughs> an argument to that, right? And, but the, the reality is, is that, you know, these companies don't want to lose good people, right? They'll re-skill that person onto another tool. I mean, it, it, very rarely do we actually see people let go because a tool was replaced. They get skilled up on the new tool, right? So, but it's fear, you know, it's a fear-based thing. And most of the, most of the companies that, the other thing that really has created a lot of tool sprawl is acquisitions. And when you start talking about the companies that we deal with, these Fortune 500 companies, they've all acquired companies over the years. And, and a lot of them, that's a, a big part of their growth strategy is through acquisition. And like we have an, like I said, we have an entertainment company that just bought another company. And it's you know, 90% overlap of tools because they were independently running companies, independent media companies, essentially doing similar things. And they were bought for the content, but the underlying infrastructure is exactly the same. They got servers, they got monitoring, they got databases, they got phone systems and VoIP. They got all the same stuff. So there's 100, you know, almost 100% overlap. So it's a huge cost takeout. And that's usually included in the acquisition thesis, right? Hey, we can bring these two companies together and save $100 million a year on operating costs. Well, a lot of those operating costs also come from IT. But what ends up happening is these tools aren't migrated, you know, they aren't replaced and they compound and they buy another company or, or they're onto the next acquisition and IT can't keep up with the, the last acquisition. They're onto the next one. And you just end up with a lot of duplicate tools that way. And that's very common in, you know, Fortune 1000. So you end up with three different help desk systems. They don't need three different, but no one's really done the analysis to figure out what is the, they know it's not right. And they know that it could be better, but they never sat down and figured out what is this really costing us? And when they realized like, wow, this is costing us four, five, ten million dollars a year, you know, that's real money. You know, that's 80 staff, right? That's that's real money that they can use. And so it's funding for a new project. You know, it's all so once they start understanding the economics of it, it usually drives those decisions. That's a fascinating anecdote about the companies combining. I know it's not like, you know, the most practical, uh, like everyday example for, you know, like every single thing, but it obviously it happens all the time. And it's not just like you said that the one massive company acquiring another, it's also like everything in between, right? It's like all of the smaller ones that are doing that, that, that you do have that. I mean, it's a great point about the, you know, hundred million dollar overlap in, in business processes and and specifically just like, you know, the technologies that keep all that stuff running now. Any things that for the CIOs out there that are, you know, in the middle of those kind of M&A cycles or are looking at technologies like, you know, so are, 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 they, are they just using the tool as part of the like M&A process now, um, like to be prescriptive rather than just like, you know, post? Yeah, I, I, sometimes. Probably not as much as I would want, <laughs> right? But the M&A process is very complicated, right? And having gone through a couple of M&A processes and, and having run, I mean, being bought and going through the process from that side and having bought companies, when I was at BMC, I was part of the M&A process of a couple billion dollar companies. I understand it. There's, um, there's a dynamic that 
when you're doing a large scale, and by the way, I mean, we do a lot of work in the telecommunication. I mean, we've been in the telecommunications industry for 23 years. My very first customer was Bell South down in Atlanta. And talk about a sector that has done massive consolidation, right? Divestiture and then back through consolidation. And uh, we've gone through this so many... I, I've been in a, a situation where I've had three customers all get acquired by the same company at the same time. <laughs> so that was a very odd situation where one company bought three of our customers that we were actively consulting with. And so uh, that's a massive industry that's gone through consolidation. And there's a lot of limitation of data right, when you're going through an M&A. As much as I would love for them to use our tool as a prescriptive, a lot of times they just don't have access to the acquiring company may not have access to the data. They may not be able to get the data to fully populate our tool, right? So just due to regulatory issues and things like that, or sensitivity of data, um, there's usually not a lot of people involved in that acquisition. And you know, the people that are responsible for executing on that usually aren't at the table. You know, they're not in the room where the decisions are being made. So as much as I'd love it to be more prescriptive uh, upfront, it usually is not. You know, usually the decision to save $100 million are made by accountants, not necessarily by, you know, the IT, you know, executors, you know, the execution of the business. So they're usually kind of said, hey, by the way, of that $100 million, you got to save 30 have at it. And then they're kind of on their own. And that's where we would get involved because then they're like, okay, now, now that we have access to the data, two companies are talking, acquisitions gone through, we can start exchanging data. And what we normally do is we bring up two instances. Like we have the instance of our existing customer, and then we'll bring up a new instance for the acquired company and populate that. And we're able to join the two instances together and do the analysis that way. And it essentially lays out their roadmap, right? It can lay out their, you know, their five-year roadmap on what they should be doing. Because a lot of these systems, it's not easy to migrate. You know, when you've got two multinational billion-dollar companies, it's not an easy thing to migrate customer care or help desk systems, right? There's a lot of data migration and data um, reconciliation. You know, just data fields may be very different in one company than another. And how do you map them over? And how do you make adjustments for systems that don't have actually have that data and now they have to have that data. So it's complicated and it can take a while. I mean, some systems can be migrated in six months, some might take three years. Yeah, it's pretty amazing to think about where that stuff is now and where it's going to be in the future, right? It's like, you know, all of these, I mean, there's still so much like novel stuff with these, you know, with technology, but, you know, with the increasing tools and different things that help you like unzip and rezip, uh, you know, all of these it's pretty it's pretty amazing to think about like what if acquiring a company's you know and and having to do that piece of the transformation is what if it's all decreased like what if you know ten years from now it takes weeks rather than months or years you know what I mean like it the speed in which that like technology leaders could like acquire other companies and actually implement them could be significantly faster. Like that's a huge difference in how you look at M and A. Absolutely, and 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 the payoff, right? I mean, the ROI is if you think you can save a hundred million dollars in operating expenses, and it may take you three years to get there, and you can do it in twelve months. That changes the dynamics of the deal, right? Uh, so, yeah, and I think 
You know, I think technology, one thing that I feel about this whole COVID thing, which is, it's been interesting for us. I mean, we really haven't seen a downtick in any of our businesses. And I, I sit there and I think about that a lot, right? And I think that really what we're in this era of technology transformation and the way out of a lot of this COVID and pandemic is through technology. And I mean, look at contact tracing, you know, and the ability to use cell phones now and Apple and Google working together on APIs on how to do anonymous contact tracing. And I live part-time in Virginia and Virginia just released their first first state to release a COVID-19 contact tracing app. And, you know, the technology that's being used now and the computational technology of accelerating vaccines and research and things like that, even to you know, my business where you're looking at helping companies go through digital transformation. And I believe that companies that are not embracing technology are not really going to be viable in the future. And it's a pretty broad statement and pretty bold statement to make, but I think that it's not a hard one to agree with because you would never go to a bank that doesn't all have an app to do remote deposits. Like why why would I ever go to a bank branch anymore? Like so starting a bank that doesn't have that type of technology, you're dead before you even get your doors open. And COVID is really kind of forcing people to rethink how they do everything and how restaurants are now getting access to customers and 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 delivery apps and food apps and Zoom has taken over conferencing and and the feedback that we're getting is is that people feel almost as connected through Zoom than they did in face-to-face being in the office. You know? so, so we're in a very interesting time right now. And I think that as a technologist, it's very exciting to me because I think that there's nothing like a crisis to create innovation, <laughs> right? And you can go back in time and look at you know, the innovation that we, you know, through world wars and things like that, that came out of all that. And you know, missile technology that, that we took from Germany in World War II became our, our space program, you know? So, and, you know, a lot of the technology that we're dealing with today, I mean, the internet really was designed to be a highly resilient defense network in case of nuclear war, right? It's a, it's a non-point-to-point reroutable network that in case a nuclear war happened and something got knocked out, the entire communication systems, it would reroute around it. That is the internet now. So I think it's a really exciting time. You know, and, and I know a lot of people are, are out there have struggling and hurting and definitely empathetic to that. But as a technologist, we're in a really interesting period of time right now. Switching gears to AI ops, it's something you've written about in the past. Um, where do you think we're at as an industry in AI ops? Uh, we're in a very early stages, and um, I'm actually uh, writing a book. So hopefully that will be out in the fall. And yeah, the interesting thing right now is that AI is really a marketing term. And we're not really doing artificial intelligence in IT operations. We're just on the cuffs right now of of applying machine learning to IT operations. And there's a lot of room to grow here. And I think it's, to, to me, you know, I've been doing... I've been doing operations since 1997. I mean, really, since 92 or 90. I mean, I am so now I'm getting, I'm now I'm dating myself. I'm so old. But I mean, when we built our first IP network at the Immigration Naturalization Service, and we started that in 1990, I was dealing with how to 
manage and operate this new IP network that no one ever put in before. And we've made advances in IT operations, but nothing really, I don't know, I kind of look back and I'm like, oh, we're kind of doing the same stuff, right? We're monitoring equipment, we're opening up tickets. And you know, there's been a lot of promise of technology advances that were going to solve a lot of the problems of IT operations that I don't think really came through. And, and, but we've made some advances. You know, we've made advances in automation. We've made advances in discovery. Um, and discovery allows us to piece things together as kind of leading to understanding how business services work and being able to resolve things better because you know dependencies. So there's been, you know, uh, service desks, you know, there's been advances in service desks technology. And, but I think AI, it's a game changer, I think, just across the board. And where we're seeing it right now really play out, and again, it's, really, it's machine learning, is in the event management and monitoring space. And it makes sense because there's so much data coming in. I referred to that before that the IT infrastructures just create massive amounts of data. You know, so much more than 10 years ago. And it's just increasing as IT infrastructure gets more complicated. You know, 10 years ago, we were talking about virtualization. Now we have containers and microservices. Everything's kicking off data and sending data out. And IoT, you know, they're talking about 4 billion IoT devices today going to 25 billion in the next five years or something like that. Everything's being instrumented. And it's just creating massive amounts of data, and we need machine learning to process that data. And that's where we are right now. But we're just at the very, very beginning of this because it's going to start becoming more prevalent in, in everything. It's going to become prevalent in service desk and customer interactions and, and trending and understanding patterns and, and predictive interactions with customers more interesting conversational UIs with customers now and with these systems and better information for IT leaders, right? Where we can start using AI to look at massive amounts of data to make better decisions that we weren't able to process before. So I'm really excited about it. I think it's, it could be the most fundamental change in the history, my history of working in, in operations. And we're just at the very beginning of it. I, I'm, I'm really excited to see where this is gonna go. What are your thoughts on future of security and, and cybersecurity and where we're at? So that's a, that's a very timely question. Uh, we, just, we just released a survey uh, a few days ago to CIOs, IT leaders, uh, CTOs, all senior people talking about the future of security over the next 12 to 18 months. It's interesting to us because of COVID. And again, this, this rush to remote working and which I think is going to stick around for a long time, really, quite honestly. I mean, even my companies have said that they really don't want to go back to the office. And we're in really no position to ask people to go back to the office if they're not comfortable. And the longer this plays out, just the more normal it's going to be. It's going to be harder to get people back to the office. So this remote working is... And, and the migration to cloud applications, the, the combination of these two things is going to be a very interesting security situation looming for us of how do you protect cloud data for people who are remotely all over the world. So you got almost unlimited access points going into cloud-based systems and it's it almost feels like a security manager's worst nightmare. But there's a lot of technology out there that can mitigate this. 
So we just uh, we just released a survey to be to really kind of understand how where people are thinking about security, how prevalent do they need to be doing audits, and you know some of the early results are coming out that a lot of the criticality of understanding your security infrastructure and the coverage of your security requirements and the understanding of your gaps and the criticality of your gaps is through our preliminary results of the survey are coming out really loud and clear right now that security leaders, they're spending money and security will always be an area of spending money because it's all about risk mitigation. And, but there is, there's always this sense of paranoia that they're not covering their needs enough. So we're seeing right now a lot of responses around understanding how in a continual process of understanding how their investments are meeting their security needs. And if they're not, how to make preemptive moves to that. One of the reasons why we commissioned this study is because at Red Monocle, we're in, a, we're in a very unique position that since we profile these tools and we have the security requirements capabilities already in our system, we can show that data very, very quickly. We can actually, and, and using things like OSI standards and NIST standards, being able to, we're, we're incorporating NIST and OSI standards into our platform so that we'll be able to clearly show a CIO real time how many, you know, what tools have I, do I have? What investments have I met? How are they meeting my requirements, either my internal requirements or my regulatory requirements? What are the gaps and what are the priorities and criticality of those gaps so I can make decisions very quickly on how to fill those gaps? So we'll have this survey out in the market for about another month. And then we'll be publishing that survey through our, our market research partner, Helix Market Research. You can Google Helix Market Research, helixmr.com. And we'll be publishing the results through our partner there, helixmr.com. Okay, let's get into our lightning round. These questions are fast and easy. Just like the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience, you can go to salesforce.com slash platform to learn more. We love Salesforce. They've been with us since the very beginning of the show and they're our presenting sponsor. Check them out, salesforce.com slash platform. Lightning round questions. Sean, are you ready? I am ready. Number one, what app on your phone is the most fun? Uh, Instagram. What hobby or habit did you pick up during shelter in place? I am exercising like a mad dog. And I also picked up a bad habit of eating ice cream. Do you have a book or TV show or podcast that you've been uh, binging? No, I've uh, I've actually just really been just reading a lot of books. Um, I just go on to Kindle and look at the top 25 books and pick some fiction and read it. How often do you get confused with Sean McDermott, the coach of the Bills? Uh, not very often, but at one point he was being considered for the head coaching job of the Redskins and living in Virginia and being a lifelong Redskin fan and a season ticket holder for 50 years. 
I decided that there were there wasn't enough room in Washington D.C. for two Sean McDermott's, so he ended up going to the Bills. So it all worked out well for us. Yeah, it did work out well. It worked out well for the Bills. I don't know if it worked out well for the Redskins, but yeah, I suppose maybe. Well, no, you got Ron Rivera's great. He's a Cal guy, so uh, I'm I'm a fan. We'll see. The Redskins, I think, have become the uh, Red Sox of the NFL. Right? Always hope, and one day we'll turn it around. Yeah. What uh, advice would you give to a first-time CIO? Oh, that's a good one. I think I keep going back to this in everything that I do, and it's really about communication. The best leaders, whether they're CIOs or any leader, right, are at their finest when they're communicating. And you know, I think IT organizations, you know, they're very strategic and they're very important and they're more important now than ever. And as a CIO, really putting together a vision and communicating that vision relentlessly will pay off in dividends down the road. If you weren't doing this, if you weren't a uh, dual-headed CEO and uh, running companies, what do you think you'd be doing? Oh, boy. I always had this uh, fantasy of owning a dive shop somewhere in the Caribbean and just uh, scuba diving all day and sitting on the beach <laughs> drinking Corona. So maybe one day when I retire, I'll, uh, I'll become a, uh, I'll open a scuba shop somewhere down in the, in the Caribbean. What question do you never get asked that you wish you were asked? I get questions a lot of times from uh, I do a lot of mentoring and, and anybody who's an entrepreneur, you know, I'll, I'll take a call with anybody. I think a lot of people, the question that they don't ask is, what could go wrong? Because the, the entrepreneur journey, uh, a lot of people see the results of it, especially if you're successful, but they don't really ask the questions of what it takes to actually get there. They see the end and they, and they got the idea in the beginning, but the, it, the part in the middle is really, that's the journey, right? And a lot of people ask, you know, questions about, you know, your successes, but they don't really ask questions like about your failures. And to me, the failures are really what define people and how you are able to take that failure and apply it and be successful at the next thing. And you may have a failure in the next thing and you apply that, you know, that lesson. So to me, that's Probably the I would I would like to ask people more about their failures than their successes because that's where they really learn and a lot of people don't ask those questions. Well, Sean, that's it. That's all we got for today. Thanks so much for joining. Uh, any final thoughts? Anything to plug? Um, no, you can you can um, find my company winward.com, you know, Red Monocle at redmonocle.com, and uh, you can read my blog at wheelsupworld.com. So I post things uh, about every week there. And uh, so wheelsupworld.com. Awesome. Thanks again. Take care. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. <laughs>